Pocket Change listeners, I am excited about today's episode. It's with my friend and almost family member, Stephanie Lawson. We're going to talk about her transition from mining to the supplement industry, bouncing back from adversity during a recession, accepting growth opportunities as they come, and navigating the system, including grieving, when you receive an autism diagnosis. Stay tuned. We're coming at you. And welcome back, Pocket Change listeners. Today, I am so excited. I have my very good friend and partial family member, Stephanie Lawson, with us today. She is a serial entrepreneur, a very devoted mother, and an active consultant. Welcome, Steph. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so, so delighted to have you. You are uh, the queen of change right now. Oh, a lot going on in life, yes. Yeah, lots of go, lots of moving pieces. You've you've recently just relocated to a very remote community in the Yukon, and um, are raising a child, homeschooling, doing all that stuff, and running a business. Yes, I am. It was a um, quick but honestly easy decision to make the move from BC up to the Yukon, and you know I just saw a lot of opportunity up here, a lot of opportunity for our family, a lot of opportunity for our business. So. Honestly, it was an easy, easy decision, but ask me after the winter. Well, this is it. You're you're not even. We'll see. Hard, you're you're not in the hard exactly. part. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so let's talk a little bit about like you're a serial entrepreneur and you have um, some really really interesting and unique background, particularly um, in e-marketplaces, but also in supplementation. Which I mean, it's a f- fun place for me as a bodybuilder. Right. Love love yeah. the products that you used to market. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's actually very interesting, too, how I sort of got into it. Um, A lot of my early career, actually, I spent 10 years in the mining industry. So going 10 years in the mining industry, flipping into the fitness industry was just a huge change for me, obviously. Um, You know, I did a lot in the mining industry as far as uh, finance, uh, moved into inventory management. What I found a lot was... I would go into these positions and, you know, just start off accounts payable, accounts receivable, small company. And I would see opportunities within the business um, that the business owners weren't seeing because they were maybe too focused sort of on the high level. And I ended up creating my own positions within the company over that 10 years. So I saw an opportunity in inventory management and presented it and said, the company needs this. It's lacking. There's nobody taking control of this. And it was, um, yeah, it was amazing 10 years. I got to travel the world, honestly, a a lot of, you know, Central America, South America, um, over to the UK, that sort of thing in mining and went from, you know, a small company of, we were six people, you know, two owners went public. We had 10 drills around the world, basically. Um, And when I left, we were at 250, 250 drills. They had acquired two companies. They went into oil and gas. Partially, they went into manufacturing, um, and it was just an unfortunate circumstance that through the recessions, 2008, I made it through. We paired back, but you know, my position—I had made myself a position that the company needed. That's what I was always looking out for too. Make sure that you are invaluable to that company, mm-hmm. and if they go to, you know, replace you, they need to replace you with five people. 
those were my positions always in companies. Um, so unfortunately, in 2011, I didn't make it through that one. Uh, when we had another recession, uh, mining got hit very hard and I had to pivot. Um, honestly, the other thing that happened in that time, which I don't talk a lot about, is I was um, my husband at the time. He went through another company. They did a huge layoff. He lost his job. And he went to work for a startup company and the startup company didn't pay him. He worked for six, almost eight weeks. And oh. so I was the bread earner of the family and he never got paid. So he left that job. And two weeks later, I got laid off. Oh my gosh. How scary. We had a one-year-old. I got laid off. He got laid off. He wasn't making any money because he had left or he got a little bit of severance. But basically we were, you know, months. I didn't get another job for, you know, almost six, seven months after that. And when I did, I had to take something that was half the salary I was making just to get back into the workforce. Wow. But to me, I looked at that as honestly, I looked at it as an opportunity. I was still in mining. I went into manufacturing there was an opening and I just said, you know what? Yes, I can do the job that you're looking for. Yes, it pays half, but I believe in the company and I believe that I can help build your company. So let's, let's do it. And unfortunately, again, uh, got burned a little bit in that one. The company ended up having to file for bankruptcy the next year. But mm. in the meantime, <laughs> I, you know, I also looked at focusing on my health at that time. So I was, you know, a year postpartum. I, you know, had put on a lot of weight. And so I wanted to get into fitness again. And I had always kind of been in it, but got into fitness again. And kind of blessing in disguise when you're not making that six figure salary and having to work those long days and doing all that traveling. Oh, you have time to actually prioritize your health, (laughs) you know, look at some other things. So, you know, I got into fitness and I met some people and decided to uh, train for, you know, a fitness competition. So went from a year postpartum and did a huge weight loss journey, you know, lost 120 pounds, I think at the end. Wow. wow. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was a lot and a lot of dedication, as you know, a lot of, you know, prepping and hours in the gym and food and, you know, juggling work, juggling, being a new mom. It was our first and, you know, so it was interesting going into that position and, and making that shift, making that change out of really all I knew for 10 years was work mm-hmm. and travel and building this company. And to have that sort of all behind me, I, I couldn't sit in it too long, I guess. Mm-hmm. You can't sit and dwell in it too long. You need to just get yeah. up and move on. And like I said, you know, I saw this opportunity with this company and I did. Um, after that year, again, you know, the company had to file for bankruptcy. I left, I left about six weeks before they actually did. So I made the move first, uh, decided that I wanted to get into the fitness industry somehow. I wasn't sure how, um, just knew people in it. Uh, An opportunity came about with, uh, Magnum Nutraceuticals again, entry level position. They told me when I interviewed, in the November, um, 
just before my actual fitness competition. I think the competition was about a week later. So I was in full prep mode, full dive. Oh my. This interview with the two owners of the company. And they looked at my resume. They talked to me and they said, oh, we need you in five years. We don't, we just don't need you now. We need you in five years. And I said, I don't believe that. I believe I can really help your company. Very small company at the time, but they believe they needed me in five years. So they didn't hire me They hired someone else. And yeah, and they called me just before Christmas. Bert called me just before Christmas. And he said, are you still looking for a position? I said, yes, I am. He said, okay, do you mind coming back in? We want to talk to you again. So they made me an offer. The other person didn't work out. They made me an offer. It was in the warehouse. It was running the warehouse. And again, they were five, six people in the company. Uh, They needed a warehouse manager. And honestly, at the time, I don't think they even knew what they needed in that company. So I saw what they needed in that company. I saw their warehouse. I saw their procedures, what they were doing. And again, I sort of, I saw what that company needed and what I could do for that company. So I took the offer. I took the offer knowing that, again, I could go in there and create my own pathway in the company and make that change in the company. And it was not even, I think it was a month later, maybe six weeks, they let me hire another person Hmm. under me. And then another person under me. Then we made some more changes. Then we, it was the growth in that two years was insane the company tripled in that two years that that I was there and maybe not even two years maybe 18 months to be honest it was just a whirlwind of trying to keep inventory in stock while we were growing and growing and growing and again I created my pathway I brought them the problems that were happening but also I brought them the solutions Mm. right I came up with this is what's happening and I can what I like to do is because I have a bit of finance background, mm-hmm. I've got the operational background, I've got a little bit of these things. So I can see what maybe someone that's just very sales focused or very operational focused uh, doesn't see because they don't have the finance portion of it. Right. So I would bring them, you know, this is what needs to happen. We keep running out of inventory. Why don't we have a plan? Who's making that plan? Well, the owners was the owner was making that plan. I said, why? Why are you doing that? You should be blue sky thinking. You should be out there. You should be promoting your company. You should be doing all the things to make us move forward for the next. What's your one-year plan, five-year plan, 10-year plan? You should be focused on that. Let me focus on the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. So it went from just running the warehouse to basically operations manager to uh uh, director, basically uh, director of operations after that, VP of operations after that. So I worked there for uh, almost seven years, seven years, I think it was. And yeah, it just kind of grew with the company and learned, learned everything about it, learned every position, basically well, could do any position. Well, and you, like you also took them to a new frontier that they were not interested in, in yes. terms of the e-marketplace. Right. And I mean, we look at, we look at the change of commerce and e-commerce is the way of the, of the way of the world now. Right. Absolutely. 
And so yeah. what, how, did, how did you do that? How did you manage that particular change of bringing somebody who was bricks and mortar and mm-hmm. retail distribution? Because I mean, like, that's an old school way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And you were like, yeah. no, we have an opportunity and you're not seizing it. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't want to go direct to consumer. They wanted to stick in the brick and mortar. They wanted maybe the consistency of that. And they wanted that partnership. And I think that when I brought it to them, they weren't excited about going direct to consumer on the website. Um, So there was a salesperson that they let open up an Amazon account. I wasn't aware of that they had opened up this Amazon account, but he kind of stumbled through it. And about four weeks later, they brought it to me. Okay. Oh, we need inventory for this Amazon account. Oh, we didn't think about that. So (laughs) that's funny. (laughs) They didn't think about how Amazon would actually take off. And this was, this was about six years ago. So six years ago on Amazon, and this was the U S market, not so much the Canadian market. This was the U S market. And that salesperson again sort of fumbled with it, and I and I said to them, you know, let me let me take it on. Uh, again, they weren't super excited about it, so I said it's okay. Uh, you know, I'll take it on. It'll be my my passion project, my evenings and weekends. I'll I'll grow this. I'll make this go. And um, my husband at the time had worked in digital since digital before digital was a thing. He was doing you know online e-commerce in two thousand. He was doing, you know, Google ads and ad placement and just before it was really a thing. And so he had some knowledge around this as well. So I said, let us, let us do this. And, you know, we ended up growing that account very quickly from, you know, a thousand dollars a month down to up to, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a month. You know, it was, it was a quick jump and we grew that account. And the biggest thing that I had said was in e-commerce and going direct to your consumer is you're telling your own story. Mm-hmm. You're not letting someone else tell your story about your product. Mm-hmm. Tell your story. Tell your story how you want it told. You can't guarantee that when someone walks into that brick and mortar, that the employee behind the counter is going to be able to tell your story. Mm-hmm. Sell your product. They, they're going to sell the product that they need to sell in that store at that time and tell that story. So going direct was a big thing. Amazon was uh, a big, it was a success for the company. Uh, we ended up obviously taking it back in house. It wasn't my evening and weekend project. It got too big for me to handle on my own. Um, and we ended up starting a company. Uh, my partner and I at the time starting a company outside of Magnum to handle that Amazon account wow. because there wasn't, there wasn't, we took it in house for a little bit, but there really wasn't anybody that knew it. So we ended up just starting a consulting virtual marketplace consulting, and we took on that Amazon account for Magnum Um, because with Amazon, you need to be in it. You need to be in it all the time. You need to be looking at it. You need to be learning what they're doing, uh, especially when it comes to supplements. There's a lot of regulatory around that. There's a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, you just have to watch out and and Amazon is going to be definitely um, more cautious than even the FDA. So if the FDA is even thinking about putting something on their watch list or thinking about an ingredient, Amazon will ban it right away. Because you have to think that their network across the US, the warehouses they have across the US, if a product gets banned and the ingredient gets banned, 
the logistics behind pulling all those products from nightmare. all of their multiple warehouses is a nightmare. So they're going to go cautious and they're, they're going to go and just say, you know what, if the FDA is even looking at it, we don't think that it's either safe for our consumers as well and the logistics behind it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, when I think about like the things that you've experienced in the past, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years, right? Yeah. 12 years of, yeah. of transition and change. Let's switch gears a little bit. I want to know yeah. where this mindset and this resiliency comes from with you, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we look at our resiliency factors are problem solving, empathy, emotional regulation, and self-confidence. They're mm-hmm. bred into us as kids mm-hmm. when we're really little kind of gaffers. Like, yeah. Talk a little bit about this mindset. Like, I mean, you know, you're talking about like accepting growth opportunities as they come along, right? Like you're, mm. you're, you're talking about, oh, I didn't get the job. And then they phone you and they're like, you got the job. And then you're like, oh, actually, I'm just going to form this whole organization <laughs> and this business. And, hey, oh, you know, I fell down. I'm going to get back up. Where does it come from? How do you, how do you dig deep and, and pull into that? I had my upbringing so my parents were real estate agents and they were real estate agents in the eighties. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I watched them. I watched them. It's so different than real estate today. We were, we as a family, honestly, we were door knocking, you know, we got taken to, you had to sign contracts in person. <laughs> we were taken to these appointments. My parents really hustled for their work to provide. So there's four kids in our family, three boys and myself, and they treated it. It was a full time. It was a 24 seven job in real estate. And I saw that and I saw them hustle to provide for their family, even when interest rates were what they were, the housing market, everything that was happening, you know, eighties and nineties. But I really saw what they were doing and they, sort of entrepreneurs, you know, real estate, it's entrepreneurship, right? It's, they're doing it, they're making their own business, they're creating it, they're creating their own opportunities. So I saw that. And I saw that, you know, you could, you could do really well in real estate. And sometimes you don't do really well in real estate. So there were times we weren't, you know, living high all the time, you know, there were definitely some lower times. So when I was 16, 15, 16, as soon as I could, I worked, Mm -hmm. I worked, I worked more than sometimes skipping school to work. <laughs> I learned more that way, right? I learned more working and I learned more. I went and I got, you know, a job at A&W and, mm-hmm. you know, the local, local A&W. And even there, you know, I was 16 and, and in the first year, I think I was supervising. I was doing 2 a.m. shifts. I was doing the cash out. I was doing all those things. So again, just sort of seeing their work ethic and what they had done really showed me that you can create the life that you want mm-hmm. and there's going to be some obviously some curveballs thrown at you but you know you just you move forward with it and again don't sit in it for too long sort of try to look at those opportunities that are in front of you and make those pivots make those shifts so mm-hmm. that's really where where I saw it was was from yeah. my parents and and even you know I'll say my brothers as well my brothers my older brothers worked in construction my oldest brother you know left school when he was young and he went straight into construction and he's done that for the last 30 years. And again, he's built himself in that industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and so I think really that's, just it, seeing that, yeah. 
Yeah, it is. And I think it's it's important to reflect back and and see, you know, I remember when I was 15, maybe it was the summer I was 16. The summer I was 16, I had three jobs. Like I just love to work. Yeah. Now, listen, I was raised mm-hmm. by a single dad, so I was the non-refundable tax credit. And so yeah. every dollar I earned took money away from my dad. And that's why he was like, no, you can't work until you're like 15. And so I, I started working in, and I worked in a daycare for a while. And that's pretty soul sucking, but I loved it. Um, but mm. then, so I was working at this daycare doing a split shift. I was doing customer service at Pizza Hut. And then I was working um, under the table for a contractor doing some tin bashing. So I was in construction. So when I wasn't working at one place, I was working at mm-hmm. another. And so I, I think, honestly, that's probably what kept me out of trouble because, you know, being in, in the Yukon, there's not very much for preoccupation of youth. Um, yeah. But I was really, and I still am, very motivated by the dollar. Not because I love to spend, but because um, we grew up in poverty, right? Like, we mm-hmm. were not wealthy people. I mean, uh, Annie, Pat, and Uncle Wade would have us to the house, and we would do Christmas dinner there every single year. And it's not simply for the the charity and the fellowship, but I don't know that we could actually afford a Christmas dinner every yeah. single year, right? Yeah. And so when I look at that, I think it's it's a matter of, for me, I also just really like being out and working and engaging with people Mm -hmm. and helping others. Like, I feel like if I'm advancing somebody's business, if I'm helping somebody lead better, if I'm helping somebody develop a process, if I'm helping manage Mm -hmm. a project or an expectation, like it just feels good. Like that is, it's, it's a purpose drive, right? Yes. Yes. So when you, you think about your purpose, I mean, you've got this patchwork quilt of beautiful um, experiences. Talk to me a little bit about your purpose. Well, my purpose came into my life 11 years ago and I didn't no. know it when I yes. had my son. <laughs> yes. Right. But I did. I mean, we did the, we did the double income, no kids for a long time. Right. And my purpose, my purpose was work. My purpose was at the time, it was definitely more about getting the things and having the house and having the car and sort of building that up. We, we lived in you know, your friends have these certain things. We had this double income, no kids. We definitely did the vacations and, and trying to acquire things. But honestly, it got old fast. It got yeah. really old fast. And I just didn't, I wasn't there. So, you know, fork in the road. What do we do? Do we move downtown, lived in the Fraser Valley? So uh, do we move downtown Vancouver? We continue this double life, no kids. We condo, you know, whatever we want to do. Or do we stay out in the valley? Do we buy a house and do we have kids? And I was... 30 when I had my son. So I had done, I felt like I had lived enough life at that time. Mm-hmm. I was traveling with the mining company. I was traveling every three months. I was seeing Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Mexico, Dominican. I was seeing all these amazing places for work, but still seeing all these amazing places and decided to stop and have a family. And this was before I had lost my job in mining. So my mindset was I was going to shift and again, you know, have being able to create my own pathway, it was my brain said, you know, no brainer, like, I can still do this, I can balance and I can do these things. So when my son was born in the first, probably he was three when he was he was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And so he was three when he was diagnosed, but we really saw it when he was about two years old. But my purpose and my life shifted cliche as it is when you have when you have a child it just you have a new outlook Mm -hmm. 
and, and a new purpose and a new drive. And I knew that it wasn't about me acquiring the things anymore. It was about creating the best life for this person who's joined our family. And again, when he was diagnosed with autism, it was, it was, there was a grieving process around it because life was going to be different and life was not going to be exactly how we pictured it. But again, it fueled me to do better in what I was doing, but also to now again, create, create that different path, create that path where I can be around for him and I can do the things that he needs me to do and create that life. Cause that was another thing that I had growing up. My parents in real estate, they were able to attend all the things, the baseball games and the plays and all the things because they just tailored their schedule around that. And they, they knew that they could work late the next night to get to that baseball game the night before. So again, when I had my son, when I had that interview at Magnum, that was a question. I said, I have a son and I need to know that I'm going to be able to, I, we believe this was pre-diagnosis, but we believe he has autism. So I don't know what that looks like. So I need you to let me know that that's going to be okay. That mm-hmm. if I need to leave, if I need to do things, if I have appointments and they said, absolutely go home for lunch every day, if you want to, to see him. And so it was, it was a big thing for me is to accept something where they had accepted my son. And again, it just became that purpose. And it also drove me to help other families. Mm-hmm. So not only just in my, in my work career, but even from a volunteer perspective or helping other families reaching out that were going through the same process mm-hmm. with autism, with diagnosis, post this sort of thing. So it, it gave me sort of a few different avenues to look at now. So it wasn't just work driven. Mm-hmm. It was, now some volunteer in there. It was also looking at my health again and making sure that that, you know, that became priority again. So it it really did change a lot of things. Yeah. So you, you mentioned a, a grieving process. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, cause yeah, the, the life that you anticipate changes yeah. when you um, hear a diagnosis that you know is going to have a lifetime impact. Right. And I mean, we have some children who have mild, um, you know, symptoms of ASD. And then of course you have children who have a, a lifetime of care and support because of mm-hmm. the, the, the way that the, the diagnosis impacts them. So when you think about that initial time frame, you know, thinking about a mom who might be staring down the barrel of this as a two-year-old who might mm-hmm. have a disability or maybe a six-year-old who hasn't yet been mm-hmm. diagnosed, what, is that, what does that look like and how do you come through that? It's, when he was diagnosed, we didn't know anybody else that had autism, mm. which sounds insane now. Because the diagnosis rate is, you know, one in 55 in BC, one in 55 kids are receiving autism funding. Wow. One in 55. Wow. One in three in a classroom will have something, whether diagnosed or not. So it's, it's, it's here. It's prevalent. We need to, we need to figure this out, but that's another day. It's, you know, 
when it's presented to you and you start to see all the things that you thought were cute, you know, the lining up of the letters and the hand flapping and just all the different things. And then, you know, when you finally learn that this, this is for my son, this is autism and you go through um, a process with a psychologist to go through the steps to actually get that diagnosis. We ended up going private because we wanted to access funding and access therapy quite quickly. Um, we were very lucky that we had the the financial means to do that, to go private um, because right now the wait list is almost three years in BC wow. for autism assessment. Wow. So we just weren't willing to take that chance. Um, so when you go through it and then you get a piece of paper, no, it's not a piece of paper. It's a novel. It is 13 or 14 pages of diagnosis of history and it goes through and it asks you family history it asks you all the milestones so it really tests you also as a mother because you're being asked all these questions and because I went back to work Kale was six weeks old when I went back to work in my oh my gosh wow I took my sorry I went back to work he was three weeks old when I went back to work. I took my first trip when he was six weeks old. I went to Argentina. So you're going through and you're being asked all these questions. And I missed a lot of those things. Mm. I missed the first words. I missed the first steps. I missed a lot of those things because I was working and because I was traveling. So it really it takes a bit of a toll too, when you're being asked these questions and you're mm -hmm. trying to remember, and just as a, a new mother in general, you know, when they hit all these milestones and, Oh, I didn't write that down. I didn't, you know, document that. So you go through that and then you finally get this assessment. And even though you know it, it's just written, it's written right in front of you that your child has autism mm -hmm. and it's, it gives you a little bit of the worst outcome as well they're kind of preparing you for the worst. They're preparing you for the worst. They're also just giving you, it's a spectrum. So they're sort of giving you what they see your child at two and a half years old being mm -hmm. diagnosed. So take it a bit with a grain of salt, but it's just, you go through, I just call it a grieving process because you know that you know that you're going to get that diagnosis. But then when you're reading it, there's just so many questions. There's so many questions about, did I do something wrong? Was it me? Because autism is, where is it coming from? What's happening, right? Is it environmental? Is it hereditary? They just don't know. They don't have these concrete answers yet. So I go back to, maybe it was, was it something I did? Was it something that in, in pregnancy, in the birthing, in maybe it was my DNA that caused this? And my husband at the time had those same questions. He was born with spina bifida. He went through a lot when he was young. He went through 26 surgeries, I believe, before he was six years old. He oh lived in New Brunswick, and they had to go to the children's hospital um, in Montreal for all of his surgeries and all of his things. So this was his worst nightmare come mm -hmm. true, that his child now has a disability that he's had to deal with his whole life. So, again... You can't sit in it, can't sit in it. You got to move forward. You got to start. Okay. So how do we, how do we make this the best for this child? Who do we need to talk to? What therapies do we need to access? What groups do I need to be a part of? What does funding look like? What do, what does all the support look like? And so we, 
we read through it. We got our diagnosis. We went through that process. We cried. We screamed. We did all those things. And then we just got to work. Mm, so that's beautiful. he was diagnosed in, in December of 2015. And basically I had him in therapy by January. Amazing. It was, it wasn't a question. It was, this is what needs to happen. The mm-hmm. funding that you can access in BC is only a certain amount up until they're six years old. And then the school district gets their funding. So you have to do as much as you can in early intervention to get them what they need before they're six and before they hit the school system. So that's, that's what we did. And you go through other points. There's other assessments that happen. And again, it's just kind of like an autism assessment all over again, but you know, basically, yeah, it wasn't that life that we, we thought we would have there. They're just, there's not going to be those trips to Disneyland. There's not going to be, mm-hmm. you know, we weren't sure if it was going to be, you know, throwing a baseball in the yard, teaching basketball to him, what school going to look like, what appears look like. And also how our friends, kids were going to interact with him because he was very different at the time. So we lost a lot of friends in that Absolutely. time too. So it was just, right. It was just, it, it becomes, becomes lonely so you really dive into, you know, how to do your best for your child. And also from a financial perspective, you dive into work too, because it's, it's financially, it's expensive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so talk a little bit about the success of Kale's early intervention and, and how he's thriving now. Right. It's amazing to see. It's really hard when you're in it to see the success. It's really hard. There's weeks and weeks where you just, you don't see it and you don't see that any progression is made. And then you look back and go, Oh my gosh, that's right. He wasn't brushing his teeth on his own. And man, now he goes in and just brushes like simple things, even right. Mm -hmm. Just brushes his teeth on his own. Um, he had, he had success, but he's a smart kid. Mm -hmm. He is a smart kid. He would learn very quickly. And he would, he would adapt and he would learn uh, the therapy that we were doing. It's called ABA therapy. It's a very play-based therapy that we were doing. He'd learn it. And then he'd get to a point where he's like, what are you guys doing? I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to see you. So <laughs> we ended up losing a lot of therapists because he just, he got bored of the process. He had learned everything that they were teaching him and he wanted somebody new. He sounds a lot like his mother. Hey. Ah, weird. Right. I've learned everything (laughs) I need to know. Give me something else. So he would do that. And we went through a lot of therapists that way because he would just get to a point where he's like, I learned everything. And we switched over because as he gets older, um, there's going to be different problems and different things that are going to arise. So he became a bit self-injurious and he was hurting himself uh, and hurting others. So we did switch therapies um, to another therapy that actually comes out of the States by Dr. Greg Hanley. And it really focuses on kids that are self-injurious and it's a type of ABA therapy, but it's creating a trust with that child that if they use communication in whatever form that is, some kids are nonverbal. So some kids use touch chats and this sort of thing. Kill is, is verbal, sometimes too verbal. And so it's really creating 
a relationship with that child that they can trust you. And if they use their words and communicate, they can get things. They don't have to hit themselves. They don't have to be destructive on things to get what they want. And that's unfortunately what a lot of kids, their mindset around is if I create this disruption, well, of course I'm going to get attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. kind of normal too, right? If I create disruption, I'm going to get attention. So what we're asking him to do is use his communication in whatever form that is to get what he wants. And he has been super successful in that. And we have seen amazing, amazing growth in him and asking for what he wants and taking more responsibility of his own his own things and, and not relying on us for help for everything. So, but it's, it's been a three or four days a week for the last eight years in therapy. It's, and it's, I have to perform the therapy as well. Right. So a lot of it is they teach the child, but they also have to teach the parent because the therapist is only there for a certain amount of time, right? So the parents have to also take it on and we have to learn as well, you know, how to have him do those same things that the therapists are able to to do. So it's it's been really successful. And I think that even looking back at the transition of moving, Mm-hmm. And how many variables that were there? He was living in a house of disruption of moving. He had moved before. We'd moved multiple times in his life, but I mean, this one was big, just big, and and the disruption and not having the comprehension piece of knowing that when we go to the Yukon, we're moving. Mm-hmm. It's not a trip. It's not a vacation. It's not a we're going to go there for a little bit and then come back. So he didn't quite have that understanding when we were in it. So to him, it was a bit novel because he's going to this place and we're showing him pictures and he loves the snow way more than he likes the rain. So, you know, I can really, right. There were lots of things that he was excited about to come, but just thinking about packing up his whole life and, you know, he saw his grandma every day since he was three weeks old, really. And he hasn't seen her now for, almost two months. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just again, making that trip up, making that transition, transitioning to just a different, different place, different climate, different surroundings. Um, He has done really well. We've kept up with the therapy. Yeah. He has video therapy. He has, you know, a session with someone from BC on a weekly basis. And we just keep that up. That's wonderful. Right. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So as as we kind of come to a wind down point here, um, I want to just maybe give you the opportunity, reflect mm. back. And if you were to give our listeners any advice on resilience, on choosing your pathway, on jumping when you don't see the net, mm. 
Because, I mean, like, listen, you think about all of these things that we've talked about in this in this mm-hmm. podcast. I mean, you've gone from industry to industry, job to job. You've created pathways for yourself. You're now in a space where you're doing independent consulting as the serial entrepreneur. You're still mm-hmm. doing e-marketplace stuff. You're parenting and homeschooling a special needs child. I mean, you are the picture of resilience. And so if you could lend one piece of advice or guidance to our listeners, or something that they could hang on to from this episode, what would that be? Trust your gut. Trust trust your gut. Your ener- energy follows intention. Put your intention out there. Just, there's always, there's always a way. So if you don't feel like you can find that way or forge your own path, surround yourself with people that can get you there. We're all willing to help each other out at the end of the day. So that's a big thing that I did too, is surround myself with people that are going to help me get there. Surround myself with people that I can ask the questions and not, not feel there's no dumb question, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? There's, you can ask any question. And I'm sure if you were in a room of 100 people, 10 other people are thinking that same thing. So just ask the questions do the research. And I think the biggest thing too is follow what really drives you. If it can't be your full-time day-to-day, just find that thing that really drives you. Find that passion and try to work that into your life, into your work. But again, just really follow follow your gut and it's going to it's going to lead you to where you need to go. I think that would be my my biggest thing. Amazing. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. And Pocket Change listeners, thank you for joining us today. It is always our pleasure to have you join us. And as always, if you have any content you'd like to see us feature, anybody you'd like to see us have on the podcast, reach out. A call doesn't cost a thing. 